Whither is God? he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderer of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Welcome back to another episode of Food for Thought. This is your host, as always, Jonathan Coots. And today, we have a good episode for you, if I do say so myself. Uh, I'm very excited for this one. Today, we are discussing the idea of what is morality. Where does morality come from? And is it relative, or is it rather objective? All of that in just a moment. First, I would like to ask you guys, I would like to request that you take just a moment of your time after this episode, of course, and leave ratings and reviews on Spotify and or Apple Podcasts. If you could do both, that would be fantastic. Yeah, it helps more people um, gain a chance to watch it because it will be recommended more. My goal is to get a 100 listeners per episode in the first 30 or so days. That is my goal. Um, I'm already at about 30 to 40, so I don't think that's too, too ambitious. Uh, so if you guys could share the episode, um, that would also be fantastic. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. So the quote I just gave to you was by Friedrich or Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, K-N-E-E-C-H-A, Nietzsche. That is also how you spell it. Um, not actually, not at all. Um, but yeah, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote that in a book uh, called The Parable of the Madman. And in that book, he's talking about a lot of different stuff. Um, but the subject of that particular passage is about morality. Uh, surprisingly, you would think that, that is actually about God, but it it isn't, because the context for God in this is more about morality and the fact that God is kind of this epitome of a classical morality in, in that kind of sense. Um, it's not actually about literally us killing God. No, Nietzsche didn't necessarily believe in God. He was more atheistic. Although he and he did originally go to seminary school, his father was a minister. Um, but when he got there, he had suffered a lot in his young life, 
And he found that this idea of God that they were teaching him in seminary school and the ideas about morality he didn't necessarily agree with. Um, so he kind of left that life behind. So real quick, let's look at another passage um, from another piece of his work, a uh, quote um, that gives a little bit more clarity to that statement. Um, here is one. Um, meaning and morality of one's life comes from within one's self. Healthy, strong individuals seek self-expansion by experimenting, by living dangerously. Life consists of an infinite number of possibilities, and the healthy person explores as many of them as is possible. Religions that teach pity that teach self-contempt, humility, self-restraint, and guilt are, 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 I'm sorry, <laughs> are incorrect. The good life is ever-changing, challenging, devoid of regret, intense, creative, and risky. So, we have this idea forming already that maybe Nietzsche doesn't really believe that morals are absolute. Maybe he believes that morals are more loose and more definable um, on your own. You can decide. And that's exactly what Nietzsche believed, in fact. Uh, he believed that we killed God, which is a good thing. If we look back at that quote that he gave at the beginning, how shall we comfort ourselves, the murderer, murderers of all murderers? What was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives but he goes on we must our must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it there has never been a greater deed and whoever is born will live in the epitome of the best portions of history that we have yet seen on this earth that was me kind of exfoliating this idea, um, adding my own words to it. But that's essentially what he's saying, is we have done such a good deeds. Must we ourselves not become God simply to become worthy of this idea? So we have a, a picture that is painted here. And to get better definition of it, we're going to have to go back in time. Back in time. The left is that way. The left is back. Going right is going forward. So the camera's kind of freaking me out a little bit because it's, it's mirroring my emotions this way to the left, backwards in time, to look at Aristotle and to look at Socrates and Plato and some of the ideas that the early Greeks had. And that is essentialism. Essentialism is this idea of history that existed um, for a long time, up until about the time of Nietzsche, and that idea is one that there is an essential portion of every item. And everything has this perfect representation of it that it is striving to be like. But inside of it is also an essence. So this book here, which we'll be reading in a minute, this is the Screwtape Letters, um, has an essence. As a book, it has something that it is representing. It has existed there. If you look at a knife then you have 
all the components of the knife. And some of those components can be interchangeable. Uh, the pins that hold the blade together. You can do it a through tang or you can do a non-through tang and attach it to the hilt. You can have a wooden handle, a metal handle, a braided handle. But without the blade of that knife, it is not really a knife. Everything else is up to interpretation. But there is a portion of that knife that is its essence. And without that portion, without that essence, then it cannot be a knife. And this book, if it does not have the pages inside of the book, is it really a book? No. But it might not be a good book. It could be a bad book, but it's still a book. And that it's just not living up to its fullest expectations. It is still a book, but is it a good book? Eh, maybe not. The knife is still a knife, even if it has a dull blade. But is it a good knife? No. That is where Nietzsche comes in and changes everything with his ideas. His ideas say that you are what you make yourself to be. So, he had that kind of thing going for him. There was the question of what comes first, the person, the item, or the essence. So, when I come into existence, do I already have a purpose and a moral pathway set out for me, or do I make those morals? Do I make my destiny myself? That's a pretty deep question, and we're going to have to unpack it a little bit more. But real quick, let's look at one other passage by Nietzsche. Or I should say, not a passage, a quote. So here we have... The quote is, All things are subjective to interpretation. Whichever interpretation prevails at a given time is a function of power and not truth. The main portion of that is all things are subjective to interpretation. So let's get a little bit of defining out of the way. Subjective means relating to the way a person experiences in his or her own mind, a person's perception of the world. And then we have objective, based on facts rather than feelings or opinions or not influenced by feelings. So something is objective if it is factual, if it bears the truth. Something is subjective if it is interpreted by your own opinions. I'm going to do one more quote by Nietzsche. Everything is subjective. For example, a figment of your reasoning mind. You say, but even this is interpretation, the subject is not something given. It is something, it is not something given, it is something added and invented. Is it necessary to posit an interpreter behind the interpretation? So, we get pretty clearly a picture. I've said that a couple times now. We get a picture of what Nietzsche believes. Nietzsche believes that morality is interpret, interpreted and subject to you. So what you decide pretty much goes. Now Nietzsche was um, one of these people who we call an existentialist, someone who believes that you kind of make your own morals. And we can see that based on the fact that he says, must we not become gods to become worthy of this deed that we've done, killing God? 
And what he means by that is he's he means we're killing these sense of morals that comes from the Christian faith. He was pretty bitter about his time as a Christian and his youth being raised in the church. He has another saying, only one Christian really ever existed and he died on a cross. He's got all of these sayings that are very, very anti-religion because he believed that it is within one's own heart to become the best that person, the best version of you that you can be. It is you who decides what is morally good and what is morally wrong, and nobody else can do that for you. Now, that comes with a pretty dangerous path of reasoning, um, of gleaning moral virtues from no one but yourself, that's a dangerous thing because you are able to justify whatever decisions that you make, whatever decisions that you want. You can justify that by saying, well, at that time, I was interpreting the area around me correctly. I was interpreting the input of my life correctly, and I outputted the correct moment, the correct ideas I was doing the right thing by my own virtue and based on my trajectory in life because I have no set destiny. I make it myself. So something really dangerous about that is very apparent and it's very commonly known that Adolf Hitler used Nietzsche as a justification for what he did with the Jews and the slaughtering of millions and millions of people. And that's only one of the dangers of moral relativism. We have a couple of other um, classifications for stuff that is similar. We have nihilism, which is everything is meaningless. Another kind of quasi-moral relativism. But then we have essentialism, which is what we talked about already, the idea that everything has an essence to it and it's living in there. Folks, we're going to have to stop for just a minute because I have to tell you about something real quick. If you guys are excited or interested at all about the proposition of starting your own podcasts, if I have inspired you to spew out your own words of wisdom, well, look no further than Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is an all-in-one hosting platform. It is where... I switched to because it is so much better than my previous uh, podcasting platform. Anchor is a branch of Spotify, so it is super seamless and easy to transfer all of your stuff right from Spotify or right from Anchor to Spotify, I should say. And you can actually record on Anchor. You can also uh, get paid super, super easily. As soon as you get 50 listeners, you can start getting paid by sponsoring or by being sponsored by Anchor. So if you guys are interested in studying your own podcasts, I highly, highly recommend using Anchor because it is all in one. It is super easy and extremely intuitive to use it. Now, let's get back to the episode. So morals... Are they innate or are they discovered or are they known already? I would say a combination of all three of those things. They are innate in us, so we already know them, but they also can be discovered. And a, an example of that is the founding fathers of America. They We discovered, um, maybe a little bit late in life, but we discovered that, hey, you know what? Owning people... 
that's not a good thing. We shouldn't be doing that. Um, people have an inherent value. All men are created equally. Do we believe that or not? I mean, all men are created created equal. I mean, doctors have to sustain these vegetables because there is an inherent value in human life, an inherent value that says all men are equal, and we have to do everything that we can to try to preserve this sacredness of life. So then we must ask, why is it so dangerous to derive morals from ourselves? Um, and why or where do morals come from? Well, I would say morals come from God, if you ask me. And we can expound upon that in a minute. But the reason it's so dangerous also comes from a, a, a Christian background, you could say, but also some others would believe that man is inherently flawed and inherently fallen. I mean, you can ask um, the author of Leviathan, Thomas Hobbes. Yeah, Hobbes. He believed that man should be ruled by other men, by one man. He was very much, in his book Leviathan, he very much is um, a believer and dictator because man is inherently evil and will seek to conquer each other. So someone stout of heart needs to rule them to protect them from themselves, which is pretty pessimistic. But in, in truth, the fallen state of man is a reason why you can't draw morals for yourself because then you get people and not everybody would be like this but you get people like Adolf Hitler who justified the slaughtering of millions of people on Nietzsche and on moral relativism and there's another idea of cultural relativism that is along the same lines each culture can decide for itself where its morals come from and what is morally just or morally unjust the problem comes when you believe this sense of cultural relativism that what is truth and in that is the problem and there's the problem is that truth cannot be subjective there has to be a right and there has to be a wrong and the problem with cultural or moral relativism and existentialism is truth gets lost when you have that and truth must remain an objective thing because it is truth there can only be one truth by the very definition of the word truth there's only one so let's look at where morals come from real quick and this is C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis is a very underrated scholar and um, because of his known association with Christendom and his child books, his children books, The Chronicles of Narnia, he doesn't get due credit for his theological discoveries or even just academic and really this sociological and psychological contributions that he makes in his works. Um, they don't get as much credit. But anyways, this is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I don't know what version this is. I don't know. I think it's HarperCollins. Yeah. It seems, then, we are forced to believe in a real right and wrong. People may sometimes 
be mistaken about them, just as people sometimes get their sums wrong. But they are not a matter of mere taste and opinion any more than the multiplication table. Now, if we are agreed about that, I go on to my next point, which is this. None of us are really keeping the law of nature, which is what he calls the law of morality. Um, and, it, and he even mentions this, that in modern times, the laws of nature are something you associate with gravity or with things along those lines, not really this law of moral nature. So when he says the law of nature, he's really talking about our inherent moralities that we can sometimes get wrong. We can sometimes misinterpret them. We can sometimes not live up to them, which is exactly what happened with the Founding Fathers. They said all men are created equal, but then continued to have slaves for another 50 or so years, about another 100 years actually, uh, close, but a number of decades afterwards, they continued to have slaves. And actually, a lot of the Founding Fathers say that they regret that. In some of their journals, they, like Thomas Jefferson, uh, was very, very conflicted about this knowledge that they wrote this passage that all men are created equal and endowed by certain unalienable rights by a creator. So they also say that this inherent moral virtue, this inherent sense of morality and equality is from God, and we owe it to that creator to live a life that's equal. Anyways, back to this. If there are any exceptions among you, I apologize to them. They had better much read some other book, for nothing I'm going to say concerns them. And now, turning to the ordinary human beings who are left... I hope you will not misunderstand what I am going to say. I am not preaching, and heaven knows I do not pretend to be better than anybody else. I am only trying to call attention to a fact. The fact of this year or this month, or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. There may be all sorts of excuses for us. That time you were so unfair to the children was when you were very tired. That slightly shady business about the money, the one you almost forgotten, came when you were very hard up. And what you promised to do for old so-and-so, and have never done. Well, you never would have promised if you had known how frightfully busy you were going to be. And as for your behavior to your wife, or husband, or sister, or brother, if they were now irritating, if, the, if I knew how irritating they could be, I would not wonder at it. And who the dickens am I? Anyways, I am just the same. That is to say, I do not succeed in keeping the law of nature very well, and at the moment anyone tells me I am going to keep it, there starts up in my mind a string of excuses as long as your arm. The question at the moment is not whether they are good excuses. The point is that they are more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe in the law of nature. So he's saying there that all of those excuses for why you did something shady with the money or why you were treating your sister is an inherent virtue or inherent point, an inherent inbred, engrossed fact in our conscious mind and our unconscious mind, that we have to defend our behavior because we know it is in violation of some inherent law in our hearts, or even more deeply in our souls. We know that there is something wrong about what we have been doing. And so, well, if you only knew how 
irritating my brother can be sometimes, you wouldn't wonder why I yell at him and call him a stupid fat idiot or something along those lines if you only knew that how busy I was going to be last week, I wouldn't have promised old so-and-so that I was going to move their couch for them. If you just knew, because we know deep down within us that there is something that says that was not the proper behavior, and we're so bad at upkeeping it because we are inherently flawed individuals, which is why we can't derive morals from ourselves. We can't be the catalyst for our moral decision-making. It has to come from something that is perfect, something that is inherently better than us. These then, continuing on with C.S. Lewis, these then are the two points I want to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. These two facts are the foundations of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. I think C.S. Lewis makes some great points there, and he articulates it in a beautiful way. The way he narrates all of his stories, he is a character in them, which is so amazing about his writing. We don't see that very often anymore, but he always is like this narrator in the story that um, he's giving you. Anyways, so, C.S. Lewis posits that there is something inherent within us that we know is correct. It is a moral truism that we should behave in a certain way, yet we continually fail over and over and over again to do that, which is why we have so much um, self-consciousness. We're so, we always have to feel like we have to defend our behavior, which is um, indicative of two problems. Indicative of, one, that we have this inherent moral nature, that this law of nature, which we always feel like we're falling short of. And then two, that we are not actually capable because of our fallen state. That's what he posits in that little passage. And he talks about it extensively from the first couple of chapters of this book, Mere Christianity, which even if you're not a Christian, it is a fantastic read. So, we have here a pretty great ex, uh, explanation for where morals come from, or more why we cannot draw morals from ourselves, because these morals inherently come from something else. They come from this external source that we know that we continually are falling short of. So then the question comes, where do morals come from? And I think there is no better person to glean that information from than C.S. Lewis. Let's read another passage from the Screwtape Letters. This is the 16th letter, by the way. My dear Wormwood, you mentioned it casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and only one. Now, the screw tape letters, if you're not familiar with them, they are a 
series of notations or letters, hence the name letters, um, that are from an older demon, a senior demon named Screwtape, shocker, to his younger nephew, a junior demon called Wormwood, hence my dear Wormwood. And I don't mean to be rude, but uh, that was my attempt at a little bit of humor, so I apologize. You mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church and only one church since he was converted, and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you are about? Why have I no report on this causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing? Surely you know that if he can't be cured of church-going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him, quote, until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The reasons are obvious. In the first place, the parochial organization should always be attacked because being a unity of place and not of likings, it brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. The congregational principle, on the other hand, makes each church into a kind of club, and finally, if all goes well, into a coterie or faction. So what is he saying there? C.S. Lewis, let's give a little bit of a background real quick. So C.S. Lewis was born into a kind of religious Catholic uh, church, and he went to college and was cured of his desire to go to church and made into a devout academic and atheist um, by one of his professors. He was a staunch, staunch atheist for many years into his time in World War I and through World War I until he got back, became a Don uh, at, at uh, Cambridge. No, Oxford, Cambridge. One of the Eng I forget at the moment. I, he he served at both. Um, I forget. I think he might have done Yale. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, he went to a, a very prestigious and got first marks, which is extremely, extremely impressive. It's like equivalent to or better a 4.0 GPA. Uh, so he got first marks in classical studies and philology, and he became a professor, and then J.R.R. Tolkien is the one that actually saved him um, and brought him back into Christendom. And ever since then, when he got converted, he became a staunch defender of the faith, and he was able to write these very meaningful uh, letters, the screw tape letters, his books, Mere Christianity, um, his space trilogy, all of these are allegories or um, simply actual nonfiction books about Christianity and about his conversion to faith. He retold the Pilgrim's Progress and kind of incorporated his own journey into it and he named it the Pilgrim's Regress. And so he's written all of these things from a very academic standpoint. He has this beautiful writing style and he brings in all of these academic terms and these um, 
actions that uh, speak to the intelligentsia, and he brings in this extremely penetrating mind to the Christian faith and explains it in fantastic detail and is able to capture the atheistic heart very well because for so many years he was a very staunch and devout atheist. So the point of that passage um, is manyfold, but the one that I was mainly desiring to bring about and display for you is the idea that morals come from God. And the reason that they are so important, the reason that one truth is because, above all things, God desires for a unity of body. And that is something that Christianity has always done. It has brought people together in a way in which our enemy, as Christians, or even if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe, Christianity still has an extremely uniting principle that keeps the world at bay. It keeps the impulses of the flesh, that, that violation of the contract of nature, the law of nature. Christianity has this uniting effect that keeps people together in times of crisis, such as our most recent pandemic. The Christian faith has brought people together for thousands of years now. It has maintained a unity or a bond of peace, as the Apostle Paul uh, calls it in the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, maintain a bond of peace and a spirit of unity. Christianity also has a very strong and staunch opinion of what morality should look like and what it should be. And it is able to keep that intact. It is able to guide people towards that thing, that single truth of morality. It helps people violate less the law of nature. It helps people have this idea of what they should be like. It gives them a representation of their essence, of that thing which existed before them that they desire to be like. And it gives them a real way that they can attain that. It gives them this sense of moral virtue that they look for, that everybody has the desire to be better and be good. But without this teamwork, this coterie or faction of other fellow brethren that desire that as well, it's very hard to achieve that. And we end up making excuses in our mind for why our behavior is justified, even though we know so clearly that it is wrong. And it is only with Christianity that you are able to have this moral virtue, this unity of spirit that helps you cleave and cling to what is real, actual truth. And even if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, and you don't believe that our morals come from God, then you at least must give the concession that Christianity has brought people together in a spirit of unity, not in the actual spiritual sense, if you're not a Christian, but in the faction or this club, as C.S. Lewis calls it, has brought people into this club, and that club 
it values something that people know inherently are good. That's why when people have kids, they always want to take them to church, even if they're not a Christian themselves. This happened in my life with people that I know who are not Christians, but had me take their kids to church or wanted to take their kids to church because they know inherently that there is something of value, a moral goodness that takes place in this building called church. So even if you're not a Christian, you know that the values, the morals, that look at what the Stoics valued. The Stoics value, which is always inherently now more than ever seen as this good thing, this desire for self-improvement. I talked about this in my episode about Stoicism, that the values that the Stoics had came from the Bible, or at least could be found in the Bible, which was written long before uh, Marcus Aurelius ever existed, or Zeno, or any of the Stoic philosophers. The Bible existed first, and those morals are plucked right out of the good old Bible. So even if you're not a Christian, you must give the concession that our values, the values that come from the Christian church or the Catholic church, both and, are good. And inherently in us, we believe that certain things are good and certain things are bad. And inherently in us, we are incapable of actually attaining those values. Look at the history of America. It's not all bad, but it's not all good either. We did have slaves, even though the Founding Fathers wrote that all men are created equal and endowed with certain alien rights, but then we kept those rights from happening, and we tried to find justifications for it, and we delayed the process of their freedom. That's a bad thing. But that doesn't negate the statement that all men are created equal. And it doesn't make it any less true that we are endowed with certain and alienable rights. We just failed to live up to that promise of moral goodness. It is not that the morals were relative, and at the time, the Founding Fathers were not right for having slaves. But, instead, there was a moral truism that they failed to uphold. They broke and violated the law of nature. They did not rewrite the laws of nature. They did not rewrite the morals. They simply failed to uphold something that was already true, something that was already good, something that was already a virtue. It was already true. That's all that I have for day for today. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave ratings and reviews. It'd be very appreciated. Please share the show. And follow me on Instagram at jaykutz03, J-A-Y-K-U-T-Z-0-3 on Instagram. Or follow me at foodforthought1, and that is the number four, at, um, at Twitter. And if you would like to get the episodes a couple of days in advance, uh, follow me at locals at foodforthought uh, locals.com slash food for thought follow me there um, you can support me on that platform as well if you think that hey this guy is doing great things uh, you go ahead follow me on locals and you can support me you can become a VIP member and get these videos early um, so yeah I hope you guys enjoyed the show and I will see you all next week with some more food for thought